when preaching the Word of God, every preacher uh, feels inadequate. No matter how good the sermon is or isn't, it's never good enough because it's God's Word that we're dealing with here. Uh, And so we know that no one sermon we could ever preach would ever do true justice to whatever the passage is that we are preaching. This is an anxiety that I think all preachers feel, but there are some passages of Scripture, I'm not saying they're more inspired or that they're better than others, but there are some passages of Scripture where this anxiety is heavier, uh, significantly heavier. Some passages of Scripture are just so rich theologically and historically so popular that it's quite an intimidating task uh, to take one of them on. And one of those passages is known as the prologue of John, which we, with fear and trembling, approach this morning. The first 18 verses of the book of John is known as the prologue of John. And the reason we call it that is because, as we discussed last week, John is a historical narrative. John is telling us an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, but the book doesn't start off with a historical narrative. It starts off with a bit of a theological introduction to Jesus And then in verse 19 is where we actually get into the historical narrative. So there's this clear and obvious introduction that John starts with before he gives us an account of the things that he saw. And so we call that theological introduction his prologue. The first 18 verses are the prologue of John in an incredible amount of ink has been spilled onto millions of pages over the last 2,000 years discussing, debating, and talking about the prologue of John. I would actually argue, I can't prove this, but I would argue that the first five verses of John are the most influential, is the most influential piece of literature ever written. I think in the history of the world. I think it's at least easier to make in the history of the Western world. But I think the first five verses of John are potentially the greatest lines ever written. Few will dispute that in at least, bare minimum, in the first three centuries of the church, there was no single passage of Scripture that was dedicated more time to than the first five verses of John. It has received an incredible amount of attention from both Christian and heretical theologians of the past. It's been studied not just for, by the way, its incredibly rich, complex theological content, but even just on a surface level, it's sermonic poetry. It reads like a poetic sermon, the prologue of John. And this is why it's even non-Christians or, or even people who are not looking at it theologically, but just literary scholars, lovers of text, have studied this uh, beyond its, their, their abilities. There's a genius to the prologue in the way it's written, the themes that it subtly establishes that will be picked up on later in the book. It's, in other words, it's really hard to express how significant this passage, this beginning of the, Bible, of the book of John has been throughout church history and even Western history. Uh, but nonetheless, we approach it this morning knowing that we will not exhaust its riches, but we will at least learn enough to glorify God and to grow in our faith. And that's what we're here for. So we press on nonetheless. Now, because John's 18-verse prologue is a theological introduction and it's not yet narrative storytelling, we're going to take it 
a little bit slower than we're going to take the rest of the book. We're going to break it down into smaller pieces than we will the remainder of the book. And so today, we're going to just focus on the first three verses. So would you please open your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And when you were there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Thus saith the Lord, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This bars the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. John wastes zero time telling us exactly who the rest of this book is about. He comes right out of the gate swinging and introduces us to the subject of the book of John. And here he refers to him as the Word. In your English Bibles, he is referred to as the Word. Now, if you come to the Gospel of John and you have no biblical background, no Greek philosophical background, this would sound really strange. Like, why is a person being referred to as a word, right? Because when we think of the word word, we think of a, a combination of letters, like a bunch of things you find in a dictionary. What does it mean that Jesus is a combination of letters? What does it mean that he is a word? It's a weird way to describe a person because make no mistake about it, John is not talking about a combination of letters. He's clearly talking about a person. And this is manifest all the way through the, the first three verses, but let's just point that out just in case. Uh, it tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This, that little word, with, in your English Bible, believe it or not, in the Greek, is packed full of meaning. It's a relationship, this word with, and whenever it's used in our New Testament, it's never used to describe like a person's relationship to an abstract concept. Like, I am with my own thoughts, or I am with my own love, or I am with logic. It's always a description of two persons in relationship, of being near someone or being with someone. As a matter of fact, this word is oftentimes used in different Bible verses where we describe being face-to-face -face with someone. And so some people, although I wouldn't agree with this, some people even want to translate John 1 as saying that the word was face-to-face -face with God or seeing the face of God or before the face of God, something like that, because of how often this word is used in a relationship of face-to-face. -face. So the point that I'm making is that according, what it means for the word to be with God is that there is some mysterious relationship between two persons here. It's a word that only makes sense if you have persons involved, not ideas or concepts. But it becomes even more clear because he goes on to say, and the word was God. And God is a person. God is not an abstract concept. God is not a scramble of letters in a dictionary. He's a person. So the word was in a, is God who is person and is in a personal relationship with God. And then in case you still don't believe me, verse 2 calls him he. The word he was in the beginning with God, right? So again, we're not talking about an idea. We're not talking about a philosophy or an abstract concept. We're talking about a personal God who's in relationship and he even does personal things. According to verse 3, he's creator. All things were made through him. He does things. Concepts don't do things. Persons do things. So 
The book begins by calling a personal, powerful deity word. The word. Now, why would John use this word, word, to describe the object of the book? The Greek word underneath the word word, it's kind of hard to talk about the word word when you're talking about words, uh, is, is probably, if I were to guess, it's probably the most popular Greek word uh, to English speakers. Very few people, myself included, know Greek and know how to read Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. But almost every English speaker has heard the word logos before. And that's what John uses. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the logos. And this is where we get English words like logic and even reason from. In the beginning was the logic or the reason or the word. And there's actually a brilliance behind this concept, this word that John used. I do not have the time nor the capability to exhaust all the different theories that have been espoused about it. But let me just give you a couple brief uh, potential speculations as to why John chose to use this word and why it is potentially so brilliant. The first reason we need to understand is, as we discussed last week, John is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. Now, we admitted that this is a, a Jewish audience that is not as steeped in Jewish customs and traditions as their brothers and sisters living in Israel and Jerusalem. But nonetheless, they're still Jewish people. They still have a general familiarity with the Old Testament. And so John uses this word that accurately describes his subject, but also pulls his audience back into their Old Testaments and immediately identifies the person that we're going to be talking about as one of the prime subjects of the Old Testament. You've just been missing it all these years. And we know that because the, the word, word of God, God's word in the Old Testament is all over the place. The Old Testament loves to talk about the Word of God. And it talks about the Word of God in a variety of different ways. It attributes things to God's Word all throughout the Old Testament more than one thing. I want us to see a couple of those. The most obvious way that the Bible talks about the Word of God is in the concept of revelation. When God speaks to somebody, when God gives a message to somebody, it's called the Word of God. You see that? Just one example is Isaiah 38.4. Then the Word of the Lord came to Isaiah. So God's Word is thought of as His revelation, His speech, if you will. It's how He makes Himself known is through His Word. And that's the reason why we call our Bibles the Word of God. It is God's speech. It's language revealing who He is. But revelation is not the only power or the only thing attributed to God's word in the Old Testament. Uh, deliverance, the power of deliverance, salvation, is also attributed often to the word of God in the Old Testament. Just one example from the Psalms. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. God's word delivers you. God's word heals you. God's word saves you. God's word has a delivering power. But it doesn't even end there. An extremely popular attribute attributed to the Word of God is the power of creation. The Word of God creates. As we see from another psalm, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. So as we look at the Old Testament background, and by the way, remember, the Old Testament was translated before Jesus' day into Greek. And that's what we call the, the Septuagint. 
the Greek Septuagint. And that's probably the Bible that John and the apostles used. And it definitely would have been the Bible his audience was familiar with. So the logos, is that Greek word is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So all throughout the Greek Old Testament is logos. It's everywhere. And it's always talking about God's revelation, salvation, and creation. And if you think deeply enough about those three themes they'll suddenly start to sound very familiar because they pattern what we call Jesus' threefold office. The Bible teaches that Jesus came to earth to occupy three offices. Prophet, revelation, priest, deliverance, and king, creator, and ruler. So what John has done is he's picked this Old Testament word, this Old Testament category that perfectly encompasses exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus came to be. The word of God reveals God to you and Jesus came to be our prophet. He came to reveal the Father to us. The word of God delivers you. It saves you. And Jesus came to be our priest. He came to save us, to intercede for us, to deliver us from sin. And the word of God creates and rules over with authority its creation. And Jesus is creator. He is Lord. He is king. John picked a perfect word to describe from the Old Testament in types and shadows exactly who Jesus is. He is your prophet, priest, and king. He is your savior, your creator. He is your revealer. He is God's word. Many have speculated, though, that John not only, whether he did it intentionally or intentionally, we don't know, but he, he picked a word that not only was just pregnant with meaning for his Jewish audience, but it just so happened to be pregnant with meaning for his Greek audience as well. Uh, again, I do, I do not have the scholarly expertise, nor do we have the time for me to get into all of the different schools of Greco-Roman philosophy. Uh, there was Epicureans and the Stoics and the Platonists and the Aristotelians. And there's, but, but remember, in the Greco-Roman world, in the, the world that John wrote in, philosophy was not what it is for us today. Today, philosophy is sort of this abstract, obscure discipline that uh, people who like to argue but don't want to become lawyers take in college. In the Greco-Roman world, philosophy was life. The philosophers were the politicians because philosophy, your philosophy dictates your laws. Right? You, can't, you cannot create. Everyone in this room, just so you know, this is, by the way, outside of my notes, this is free. Everyone in this room is a philosopher whether they like it or not. Philosophy is a broad concept and, and most of us have a philosophical presupposition that we don't even know. And so much of what we say, well, that... It, this should be like this, or this should be like this. That's dictated by your philosophical outlook on life. So because philosophy was seen as, this is what gives life meaning. The philosophers basically ruled the world. Plato was a superstar. Aristotle was a superstar because this was the most important thing to them. So philosophy was a big deal. So I'm not talking about just some obscure academic study. I'm talking about something that, was, that permeated the culture. Everyone would have been familiar with this concept of logos because logos was incredibly important to every one of the Greek philosophical schools. They, they used this word logos to basically be the title for whatever the, the god of their system was. 
Um, so some of them saw the logos or the reason as the thing, the ultimate principle that gives life all of its meaning. Some of the Greek philosophers saw the logos as a kind of a deistic, creative thing that created the universe. And it can get kind of complicated. But to put it in brief terms, all of the Greek philosophical schools had some ultimate, some grand thing they were trying to discover. And they gave that thing the title Logos. The Greeks were searching for the Logos. The Greeks were describing the Logos. And so here, John has entered into the conversation. And he said, all of the Jewish people who are always praying for the Word of God to reveal and deliver and protect them, and all of the Greeks who are always trying to discover this creative power that makes everything and gives everything its purpose and its meaning, I've got him for you. His name is Jesus. He's your Savior. He's your ultimate purpose. He's the creator. He picked a word that brought the Jews and the Greeks together into this all-encompassing concept saying, the person you're looking for is Jesus. Whether you're Jewish or Greek, you're looking for Jesus. Let me tell you about him. It's brilliant. And like I said, so many pages have been written just over the word logos, let alone the rest of the prologue. So John here introduces us to the Logos, but it's important for us to not get stuck too much in the background of this word. Like, what does Logos mean? What does word mean? Don't let the Greeks define that for you. Don't even let the Jews define that for you. John is trying to give a new definition of this word. Certainly, he's bringing it in because of its connotations. But at the end of the day, our job is not to discover what Plato thought of Logos. It's not to discover what the Jewish people thought of Logos. Our job today is to discover what did John think of Logos? What is, who is the Logos according to John? That's what our task is this morning. And I think that in the first three verses, the primary thing John wants you to understand about the Logos, and so this is kind of like I'm coming right out the gate now with what the sermon is all about. John wants you to know that the Logos is God himself. The Logos is God himself. That's what John wants you to know. The first three verses of John chapter 1 are all about the Word being God. And I think John makes this very clear in three different ways. And so in classic preacher fashion, I try to title these three different ways with all beginning with the same letter so that you can help, it'll help you remember. So I'm going to teach us today that John teaches us that the Word is God using three things, an argument from title, an argument from time, and an argument from talent. Title, time, talent. Title, time, talent. Let's begin with title. This is the most obvious way that John identifies the word as God because he just comes out and says it. <laughs> he just gives the word the title God. He calls him God. He tells us the word is God. Read verse 1 with me. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We talked about that, 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 that concept of being with God implies some distinction. And so he immediately clarifies that distinction with some unity. This word who is face to face with God, who is he? He's God. He was God. He was in the beginning. He wasn't just with God. He was God. If you ever hear anybody make the claim, because people make this claim a lot, that the Bible never clearly and explicitly identifies Jesus as God, you know you're dealing with a person who doesn't know what they're talking about. 
the Bible, there are a lot of subtle ways that the Bible teaches the deity of Christ, but there are a lot of very explicit ways. This is not the only one of them, but this is the one. This is one of them. The Word was God. He just gives us the title. This personal Word is God Himself. And as we're going to see later on, this is the Word who manifests Himself in time in the person of Jesus. And that is why anyone unwilling to confess that Jesus is God in the fullest sense of that term is not and has never been considered a Christian. And only Christians are welcome in membership, and so certainly it's, it's a vital point of being membership and being in unity with our church. That Jesus is God is one of the chief confessions we have as Christians. And we call him God because the Bible calls him God. But, just for fun, let's not ignore the other ways that John very clearly teaches us that Jesus is God. You see, he doesn't just give us a title. He also proves this by appealing to Jesus' time or his origin. Look at verse 1 with me again. But let's only read the first part of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. In Greek, John wrote a two-word phrase, en arche, which translates in English as in the beginning. En arche. Now, John had other options. He could have used other Greek words that likely in English would have translated to in the beginning. This isn't the only way John could have said in the beginning. He could have said, Enargeto Arche. That was available to him. But he chose to use En Arche, not Enargeto Arche. And the significance of this choice is massive. Had John written Enargeto Arche, then what he would have been saying was that at in the beginning, the word came into existence. The Word was born. The Word was created. In the beginning is where the Word's origin is. That's where He came into existence. In our ghetto arche would have been saying something like, God created Jesus, and then Jesus was now that He's been created. Now He's with God in the beginning. But John didn't use in our ghetto. He used his N. And it has a different connotation, which has a massive difference for us. What N arche then means is that in the beginning, the Word was already there. The word did not come into existence in the beginning. It's saying if you got into a time machine and managed to go outside of time into the beginning, you would find the word there. He would already be there. And then go back further into eternity past and you would find the word there. And then go back even further and you would find the word there. What John is communicating is that every moment before moments were created, the word was present. In other words, in the beginning is the Bible's way of saying eternity. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What the Jews understood from that is God is eternal and then he's the one who brought creation into existence. He was in existence in the beginning and nothing else was. And now John is hearkening us back to Genesis 1 and he's giving a commentary on it. He's expanding it. You've read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. Let me add some details. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was in the beginning with God, and He created all things. The Word is just as eternal as God Himself. The Word is eternal. That's a time. It's actually outside of time, but that's His argument from time, and here's why. Because there's only one thing that's eternal. God. Everything that is not God at some point had a creation point. 
If it's not God, it came into existence. Jesus did not come into existence. Or forgive me, the Word did not come into existence. That makes it eternal. And since God alone is eternal, that makes the Word God. The Word had no beginning. He is as ancient as God Himself. He is always with God. So in other words, we are not to think of the Word of God as a creature, like an angel or a servant or a literal voice. The Word of God is an eternal person. John, by the way, makes the eternity of Christ even more clear in verse 3. Notice what he says in verse 3. All things were made through him, and then this is the key, and without him was not anything made that was made. That sounds kind of like an awkward phrase, but it's, it's, it's perfect. What John is trying to say is that if it came into existence, the word made it. Nothing came into existence apart from the Word. So follow the logic with me. If everything that has a creation point was made by the Word, now assume with me for a moment that the Word was created. It has a creation point. So what does that mean? Who created the Word? The Word. (laughs) But that doesn't make sense. You can't create yourself. You have to exist in order to create. So if everything that has a creation point was made by the Word, the logic entails the Word has no creation point because he can't bring himself into existence. John is very, very clear. The Word made everything. Everything that was made, the Word made it, which means he is unmade. This is why we say in the Nicene Creed and in some of our Christmas songs, we confess that Christ is begotten, not made. Begotten, not created. He's not a creature. He's eternal. The Word has always been. And verse 3 leads us nicely into our last argument. We've given an argument from title, an argument from time, but we also give an argument from talent. A person's talent is a person's unique ability. And the Word has a very, very unique ability. And that is the ability to create. Verse 3 again. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here, John calls the Word who would be manifested in Jesus Christ our Creator. God the Father created by utilizing his Word. The Word of God is the personal agent God used to make everything. Now, this might be scandalous to our contemporary world, but this was very bare bones Christianity for the apostles. This was a very basic, uh, uncontroversial, simple idea for the apostles. That's why it shows up all over the place. The idea that Jesus is our creator is a very common apostolic teaching. Let me just give a couple examples. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here the author of Hebrews, without blushing, just comes out and tells us Jesus is the one God made the world through. Jesus is the creator. And not only is he the creator, but because he's the creator, that entails two other things. It entails then that he is the ruler, the king. He is the heir of all things. If you create something, you get to have ownership of it. If you paint a beautiful painting, I don't just to come in and say, that's mine now. No, it's yours. You made it. Jesus made all things. It's his. He's the heir of all things. 
But not only that, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So let's talk about creative talents for a moment here. Let's talk about creative abilities. Jesus, the word, the son, had the ability not just to bring everything into existence, but then has the ability to providentially uphold it and govern it. You want to know why the sun's going to rise tomorrow? Because Jesus is Lord. He is the one upholding it. If Jesus takes his hands off the reins, our universe goes away. We're toast. Jesus is the providential governor of the universe and the creator of the universe. And let me just tell you, no mere creature has the power to do that. Angels don't have the power to do that. Humans don't have the power to do that. God and God alone has the power to create and uphold all things. But that's not the only time. John 1, Hebrews 1, it's not the only place. Colossians 1, Paul tells us, speaking of the Son, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Here Paul is saying the same thing. Jesus created all things and he holds all things together. This is a divine power no creature has. I also want you to notice, Paul throws in a third thing. Who is creation for? All things were created through him and for him. Can you imagine saying that about a creature? Can you imagine if I walked into a room and said, hey, everything you can see, think, or imagine, it's all for me, it's all about me. Blasphemy. Arrogance. If Jesus is not God, if the word is not God, then the Bible is a book of pure, idolatrous blasphemy. That some mere creature would have the audacity to say, everything is all about me, it's all for me. But because he has a divine nature, because he is God, he can say that without blasphemy. Because everything is all about God. Everything is for God and Jesus is God. The Bible affirms things that are only true of God and applies them to the Son. That is why we confess that Jesus Christ is God in the fullest sense of that word. Jesus is proved to be God from John chapter 1 by his title by his time, and by his talent. And make no mistake, once you affirm the deity of Christ, the deity of the Word, this is going to have massive ramifications for the rest of your theology. Massive implications for every doctrine that you confess afterward. This alters it. This adjusts it. This clarifies it. Let me just give you two. Obviously, I'm not going to give you every single doctrine in the Bible. But let me give you the two probably most important ramifications that John 1.1 has for the rest of our theology. Number one is now I hope you're starting to see the seeds of why we confess the Trinity. Sometimes when people hear about the Trinity and they hear us explain it, it's like, why would you want to believe that? It's so complicated and it's so philosophical. Like, why are you choosing to... Aren't there so, such more simple views of God out there that you could embrace? The text compels us. The text compels us to be Trinitarians. The Bible cannot be read in any other fashion. We did not choose to be Trinitarians. The Trinity chose us. And John 1, 1 is the beginning of that. It doesn't by itself prove the Trinity, because the Spirit's not mentioned here, but it establishes some things that are only true in a Trinitarian system. Let me just give you one of them. First, First and foremost, verse 1 establishes that there is some kind of diversity in the Godhead. 
You cannot have a, a, what we call Unitarian God, a static, one God, one person, like you. You're one being and you're one person. Very simple, very static. You're, you don't have the ability to do that with God. You cannot think of God as unipersonal. Why? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So John establishes a kind of diversity. There's a kind of, you could maybe even say the word relation in eternity. There's God and His Word, and they're with each other. They're face to face. We've got diversity of persons here. And this is why, by the way, we are not Sibelians, which is an ancient heresy that has come about in our modern day under a new name called modalism. We are not Sibelians in this church. We are not modalists in this church. Because here's what modalists teach. Here's what Sibelians teach. They say, you know, that whole Trinitarian, triune person, one God, uh, Greek, philosophical mumbo-jumbo, we're not about that. We believe in the God who's one being and only one person. And you say, okay, well, what do you do with the Father, Son, and Spirit? And they say, well, those are just different modes that God manifests himself in. So sometimes he's the Father. And when he's the Father, there's no such thing as the Son or the Spirit. And then he'll stop being the Father and he'll be the Son. And now the Father and the Spirit are gone. And then he'll stop being the Son and he'll be the Spirit. So the the Trinitarian persons are really just like hats that God wears. But it's all the same person. They'll oftentimes use analogies of like water. H2O is sometimes ice. Sometimes it's liquid. Sometimes gas. But it's never all three at the same time. That's mumbo-jumbo. So God is not three persons at the same time. He's sometimes the Father. He's sometimes the Son. He's sometimes the Spirit. But it's the same God. Or they'll use analogies like, for example, Elder Jesse is both a father, a husband, and a teacher. And sometimes he's acting as teacher. And he, he treats his students differently than he treats his children and his wife. And sometimes he's acting as a husband. And sometimes he's acting as children. He has these different roles that he plays, but it's just one person behind those roles. That's how Sibelians think of God. But here's the problem. In the beginning, we do not have a one person playing one role. We've got two persons in relation together. The Word was with God. So who's the Word and who's God? Sibelians can't answer that question. The Sibelians remove diversity from the Godhead, but John 1 demands diversity within the Godhead. God has always been with his word in a face-to-face relationship. John 1 refutes modalism because we have distinction in the Godhead. But in case you you see that distinction and you want to run too far with it and say, okay, so clearly we have God in the word and there's only one God, so the word must not be God. Right? The Word is with God, but He isn't God. He's just with God. So the Word must be some eternal non-God. Some eternal half-deity, maybe. John cuts that off right at the pass. He immediately goes on to tell us this Word who was with God was God. And he doesn't just tell us that like later on in the book. It's the very next thing he says. <laughs> the Word was with God and in, hold your horses, and was God. He was both with God and was God at the same time. And this is something that, this is the reason why we use, when we talk about the Trinity, we use words that maybe sound foreign to you, like essence, nature. We'll say things like there is one divine essence, one divine nature that is shared by multiple persons. 
The word, and we do that because of texts like this and texts like Hebrews 1 where we are told that the son shares, he is the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1 says. The word was with God, but the word was God. They share the same essence. They share the same substance. They are both fully God in the sense of that word, yet there is some distinction. But nonetheless, the word is not a creature. He's not some lesser being. He's not an idea. He is God. This is why the early church rejected Arianism. Arius was wrong when he famously penned that there was a time when the Son was not. Arius believed that the Word of God, the Son, was a creature. God created him, and then he became the pinnacle of all creation after that. But the Word, nonetheless, in Arius' mind, is a created being. They deny that the Word then can have the exact same nature as the Father because the Father is eternal and the Word is created. So they're not the same. They're they're different. One is creator, one is creature. One is eternal, one is not eternal. They are very distinct. One is God, one is not God. That's what the Arians taught. And this is what separated the Arians from the Christian faith historically. And this is why, by the way, Arianism, this is why we reject as Christians, Arianism also has come about in our modern day under a new name called the Jehovah's Witnesses. This Jehovah's Witnesses are functionally Arians. They teach that Jesus was a created being who then created everything else. That he is like a, like a demi-angel, this super powerful angel that God created and he loves more than all of creation and he gave him all this power and authority. But nonetheless, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is created. But John 1.1 1, 1 refutes that because the Word was God. You want to know, I don't, I don't remember all the different ways the Arians got around it. You know how Jehovah's Witnesses got around it? They just straight up changed the Bible. You ever read a Jehovah's Witness Bible, John 1.1? 1, 1, you know what it reads? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's what they say. Because he, he can't be God himself because there's only one God, and... The Word was with the one God, so he must be different. You see, John 1, 1 refutes these major heresies, modalism, Arianism, and it even refutes what's known as tritheism. Okay, fine, Jesus is God, God is God, so we'll just have two different gods then. Simple as that, there are two gods. Mormons would be a modern day incantation of this. There's not one God over this world, there's not two gods, there's three different gods over this world. Yeah, Jesus is God, but so is the Father, and they're different beings. Three different gods. Keep in mind, who wrote the Gospel of John? A monotheistic Jew. So here's why we believe in the Trinity. Because John 1.1 by itself limits us to these three things. There's only one God. But there's personal distinctions who are both God in relationship with one another. So we have personal distinctions who are both God in relation at the same time, but there's only one God. You say, oh, that doesn't make sense to me. That's fine. That's John 1.1. John 1.1 refutes the Arians because they can't make sense of the fact that the Word was God. John 1.1 refutes the Sibelians because they can't make sense of the fact that the Word was with God. And John 1.1 refutes the Tritheists because they can't make sense of the fact that John believed there was only one God. You see, John 1 doesn't prove the Trinity, but it's only consistent with the Trinity. There's no way out of the Trinity when you read this first verse. 
It's all that's left over. So you see, you affirm the deity of Christ, a lot of dominoes fall after that. You're going to have to be a Trinitarian. Those are your only options. Believe in the deity of Christ and be a Trinitarian or deny the deity of Christ. You can't have both. But this doctrine has other implications. It has implications for your salvation as well. It doesn't just change your view of the Godhead. It changes your view of salvation. Because here's what John is ultimately going to expand on for the rest of the book. If Jesus is the creator, which John has established, God created through the Son, if he's the creator of the old creation, then by his nature, he's going to have to be the creator of the new creation. In the same way that nothing came into existence but through the Son, no new thing comes into existence but through the Son. So if you are ever hoping as a sinner to be remade, as Paul says, to be a new creation, as Jesus says, to be born again, if you want your old self to die and your new self to come into life, you need the Creator. And who is He? The Son. Only in and through Christ can a person be saved. Only in and through the only one through whom God the Father creates can you be recreated. If Jesus is the author of all things, then that means he's the author of your faith. He's the author of your salvation. You cannot believe that Jesus is creator and then cut him off from salvation. John has already begun to teach us what we call the exclusivity of Christ. There is no salvation outside the Son. You must come through the Son. He is the creator. So this deity of Christ is of monumental importance. The implications are massive. And that is why John begins his gospel by establishing the deity of Christ right off the bat. And so here's the good news. The one you are going to read about for the next 21 chapters. The person, the subject for the rest of this book is none other than God himself. So prepare yourselves to meet God the Word.